The first reading comes from Job 36, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page 379. Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be sure that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. God is mighty but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and in years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbour resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is uh, found in Hebrews, and you'll find that on page 852, uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 4 to 11. <clears throat> in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let me add my welcome. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you've joined us uh, week three of a five-part series in the book of Job. Uh, we're looking at a difficult topic, uh, but an important topic, a topic called uh, suffering. 
we're addressing this topic as a morning church uh, because many of us uh, have suffered, uh, because many of us are suffering, uh, but also to equip us uh, for those of us who, haven't, who are yet to suffer uh, in a deep way as yet, to equip us for the times when we do suffer, to know how to respond rightly to God and to keep trusting God in the midst of our suffering. So uh, please turn back to the book of Job. Today we're looking at chapters 29 to 37, and I've called the sermon, Where is God When It Hurts? Where is God When It Hurts? I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask God for some help. Uh, Father, thank you that you do uh, equip us for whatever events of life uh, you bring upon us. Thank you that you teach us how to respond rightly. Uh, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do need help. We need help to listen, to hear you, uh, to understand truths, but more than that, to actually own them for ourselves and to put them into practice. And so I do pray pray for a powerful work of your spirit this morning, uh, to teach us, to refine us, to correct us, and to do whatever good work in us that we need to have done. I ask that for Jesus' sake. August the uh, 31st, 1997, was a day that is etched into my memory, and I'm guessing many people's memories around the world. It was the the day that uh, Diana died. Here she is. Uh, We woke up that morning to the news that she'd been involved in a car crash. We were told, first of all, that it was not serious, and then we were told that actually it was fatal, and the grief and the mourning that was witnessed in the UK is something never to be seen before or since in many ways. Over the, the days that followed, uh, $54 million was spent on flowers in the UK alone. And people just, just gathered around this place called Kensington Palace and they expressed their grief, they expressed their mourning. And there were, there were letters written and there were pictures put on the railings, and there were words of, of comfort. Uh, I guess it, what summarized the whole feeling of the nation was a, a picture and a note posted by a five-year-old girl. There's a picture of Diana, and she just wrote one word. There it is. You can't read it, but the word just says, why? Why? And that summed up the sentiment of the whole nation. Why has this woman died? Why was a woman who was so, so good and so beautiful and did so many good things, why would she die so young? The irony is just a, a few days later, I think it was three, maybe four days later, another woman died. Here she is. Her name was Mother Teresa. And she was the founder of the missionaries of charities. Let me just summarize some of the things that, that she did in her life. Uh, she equipped and trained 4,000 nuns to run orphanages. She set up AIDS hospitals and charities centers worldwide. She set up cares for refugees, for the blind, for the disabled, for the aged, for alcoholics, for the poor, for the homeless, for victims of floods and ec- epidemics and famine in Asia and Africa and Latin America and North America and Poland and Australia. Now, there's a woman. There's a woman who did great things. But not many people ask the question, why? 
because she was old. I want you to imagine for a moment that during her lifetime, that floods came and washed away all her aged orphanages. That fires came and, and they ravaged all those refugee centers. I want you to imagine that Mother Teresa was sitting uh, with her skin festering with, with disease and oozing pus. I want you to imagine for a moment that all those good work she did in Africa and Asia was all wiped away in this bizarre act of nature. And then perhaps we'd really ask the question, why? Why would God bring these things on, on someone who's doing so much good? And you might just begin to plumb the depths of that word, why? We're looking at a book of Job at a man who in many ways is more like Mother Teresa than Diana. He's a man who was described as blameless, upright, a man who loved God and a man who worshipped God and who sacrificed for his kids and a man who had great property and great possessions. And, and yet, if you've been with us in the course of just a few days... He lost his property, he lost his possession, he lost his cattle, he lost his kids, he lost his health. And you saw him at the end of chapter 1, he's sitting there and he's distressed, but he's crying out an amazing cry, amazing cry of trust. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Incredible words. God gives, God takes away. Whatever happens in life, we must praise God. But then we saw in chapter 3, it's almost like this, this delayed, shocked, and he starts to scream, and he starts to question. He's saying, why, God? What are you doing, God? And God brings these three friends along, so-called friends, who sit with him, and they basically tell him that you're suffering because you sinned. That doesn't help him very much. And from chapters 3 right through to 28, you've got this cycle of speeches where Job speaks, the friend speaks, Job speaks, the friend speaks, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And, and Job is just screaming and screaming, where are you, God? Why are you doing this, God? This morning I want to look at uh, two main points from these chapters. Uh, the attitude that we're going to have towards suffering. One's a common attitude, and one's the godly attitude. A common attitude towards suffering And it's really Job's last speech. It's in chapter 29. He looks back at his life and he says, God, if I could turn back time, if I could just do things again and do things differently, then my life might be different. Let me just read part of chapter 29 to you. It's on page 374. Job continued, Have I longed for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me? When his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessings my house. When the Almighty was still with me and my children were still around me. And when my path was drenched with cream and my rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. When I went to the gate of the city and when I took my seat in the public square and young men saw me and they stepped aside and old men rose to their feet. And the chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouth with their hands And the voice of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Whoever heard me speak spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist. The man who was dying blessed me. 
I made the widow's purse heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice as my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and I snatched the victims from their teeth. Job looks back at a time in his life where life was good. And he said, how I long for that day. I just want to turn back the clock of time to a day when life was good. And you can understand why. Because if you know the Bible, there are two two great commandments in the Bible. Love God and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And Job looks back at a time and he says, I was doing both of those things. And yet, God's brought this upon me. It's like he's got two pieces of paper. One says now and one says then. And he lists under the then what life was like then. He lists under now what life is like now. And he says, I don't understand this. Why? So he looks at the, the command, love your neighbor. He says, then, I, I cared for the needy. I helped the fatherless. I rescued the dying. I was a righteous judge to the oppressed. I respected and I was honored and people loved me and I loved them. That was then. But now? Now I'm mocked. Now I'm detested. Now I, I'm just rejected. Uh, just look over to chapter 30 to see the depth of his despair. 30 verse 1, but now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Down to verse 9, now their sons mock me in song, I've become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They don't hesitate to spit in my face. What you've got, this, what you've got here is a picture of a man who, in yesteryear, would have been... Uh, acknowledged and honored and people say, hey, there's a good man. And the picture now is a man who is sitting in a cardboard box at the side of the road, dribbling, smelling of urine, and people walk by him and mock him. But the shock is that this man used to be like the CEO of of Tear Australia or the CEO of of the Samaritans and a man who did such good work. And you can understand why he's saying, if I could turn back time. He used to love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Look at the beginning of, 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 of uh, chapter 29. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. Verse 3, God's lamp shone upon my head. Verse 4, I knew God's friendship. Verse 5, when the Almighty was still with me. That was then. I tasted, I saw the Lord was good. I knew what it was like to be near God. I experienced his blessings. That was then, but now? Well, now it feels like God has cast me into the mire and God has turned cruel. Chapter 30, verse 11. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. Or down to verse 21. You, God, turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You ever had that feeling? You once enjoyed the intimacy of God. You knew him as your father, as your rock, as your refuge. But this moment in history, this time in your life, it just doesn't feel like that. It feels like he's against you and not for you. And so you sit and you say, if only I could turn back to that time. My life was good. It's summed up brilliantly in this poem by William Cowper. 
Uh, William Cowper wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns. Listen to these words. Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet the memory still. But they have left an aching void that the world can never fill. It's like this void in Job's heart. He's lost something precious. He's lost this, this intimacy with God. And Job feels like he's lost his integrity, his honor, his worth. But more than that, he's lost God. That's what he feels like. Ever had that feeling if I could turn back time? He accuses God of being unjust. But, but the worst thing is that he, he accuses God of being silent. Just look at chapter 30, verse 20. I cry out to you, O God, but, but what? Look at it, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Look at that verse again. I cry out to you, God. I'm talking to you, God, but you don't answer me. It's either you don't hear me, God. Uh, you see me because I stand up, but you look at me, but you don't hear me. Or you do hear me, but you can't help me. Or you do hear me, but you just can't be bothered to help me. That's what he feels like. Screaming to God, talking to God, crying out to God, but God's just not listening. It's like when you spent your whole life in the arms of a loving wife or a loving husband, and one day you wake up and they're just not there. And they've left without a trace. That's how Job feels. He's hanging on by a, a spider's thread. God, where are you? God, why aren't you listening to me? And as you read through Job, you can almost, you can almost hear Satan whispering into the ears of Job. Okay. Maybe your God's not so good. Maybe your God's not really there. Maybe your God can't help you. Maybe your God doesn't love you. Maybe your God has left you. And so Job, in his final words, he lays down the gauntlet. Just flick over to chapter 31. Look what Job does. He puts God in the dock, and he gives one last summons to God. 31 verse 35 Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Come on, God. Answer me. Now think about that for the moment. Job is a mere creature. He's just a man. And he's saying to God, I demand that you give me what I want. I demand that you answer me. Come on, God. Tell me. The audacity of the man. That a little creature could, could just deign to, to demand those things of his, create, of his creator. And yet, times when we feel that God has left us or times when we feel that God is silent, that's what we do. Demanding answers of God. That is a common attitude towards suffering. God's unjust. God is silent. Just want to go back to the time when life was good. And the question I've got to want you to ask this morning is that, is, that you, is that how you respond to times of suffering? 
put God in the dock, demand he explains, or just look back to the good times and say, I just want to go back to those times. I want to show you this morning what is the right attitude towards suffering. What happens next in Job is almost as though God has, so Job has demanded that God steps on the stage. And God says, sure, I will step on the stage, but in my timing. And I will speak to you, but I'll speak to you first, not directly, but through another man, another friend. And his name is Elihu. Let me read 32 verses 1 to 7. End of verse 31. The words of Job are ended. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Bazite, the, of the family of Ram, became very angry. Angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they'd found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that these three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the, the Buzite, said, I'm young in, in years and you are old. And that's why I was fearful, not dare to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it's the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. And so Elihu speaks. And I want to argue that Elihu is actually a goodie, not a baddie. Uh, these three friends have got a really neat, trite theology. You're suffering because you sinned. Elihu's theology is much more refined. Uh, the narrative changes from poetry back to prose. And at the end of the book, in chapter 42, uh, God condemns the three friends, but he doesn't condemn Elihu. And so what does Elihu teach about suffering? What does Elihu teach us and Job about the right way to respond to suffering? I want to give you three things this morning. Number one, God is greater than you. God is greater than man. That is part of Elihu's theology. You are not God. You are not as big as God or as great as God or have the understanding of God. You cannot see everything that's happening in the world. You don't understand the full picture because you're not God. Look how he summarizes it in chapter 33, verse 12. But I tell you, in this you are not right. In all your, your whinging and complaining, Job. For God is greater than man. Just look at those words. For God is greater than man. It's not particularly profound. It's such a simple statement, but it's a statement that you and I have got to grasp hold of in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering. God is bigger than you. God is bigger than me. God is bigger than any single human being that's ever lived on the earth. He is God and you are not. God might have some perspective or, or some purpose in mind which Job knows absolutely nothing about and you know nothing about and that is so humbling because you do not know the mind of God. We're not always told what is God, God is doing through our suffering. But whatever's happening, remember that God is much, 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 much greater than you. And Elihu says over in chapter 35, I'll just read a couple of verses, 35 verse 12. He says, God does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God doesn't listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less 
then will he listen when you say that you don't see him, that your case is before him, that you must wait for him. He's saying, Joe, when you, when you command and demand that God steps into the dark, why should God listen to you? Because he's much bigger than you. Why should the great, transcendent, awesome God who knows everything, who holds six billion lives in the palm of his hand every single day, why should he listen to you? He doesn't have to. And I know that kind of rattles our cage because we're told in the Bible that that God longs to listen to us. And that is true. He does long to listen to us, but he doesn't have to. Sometimes I think that we, we want God just to be our puppet at our beck and call, telling us what he's doing. And sometimes say we, we, we treat God a bit, a bit like a, a vending machine. You know, stick something in and out pops out some, something for our good. He's much bigger than you. And he's much bigger than me. He's saying, Job, what makes you think that, that God will answer you when the underlying assumption is that God owes you an answer? And I reckon that very simple statement that God is greater than man will change the way that you face suffering because it keeps you humble. The second thing he teaches is that God, God does speak. How dare we ever, ever claim that God is silent? Right from the beginning of time, God has been speaking through his creation, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues to speak in many and varied ways. The question isn't, does God speak? The question is, are we listening to God as he speaks? Look at chapter 33. 33, verse 12. I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another, the man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn a man from wrongdoing and to keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones. Job is saying, or God is saying, I speak in dreams, I speak in visions, and yet I speak in pain. Do you spot that in verse 19? A man may be chastened on a bed of pain. Job is saying, God speaks through many and varied ways, but one way he speaks is through this thing called suffering or this thing called pain. It's what C.S. Lewis called uh, severe mercy. Remember last week I quoted from a book called uh, A Grief Observed, written just after C.S. Lewis had lost his, uh, his wife. It was a very raw and emotional uh, book, basically saying, God, where are you? You've left me, you're silent. A couple of years, years later, he wrote another book, much less emotionally charged, much, much less raw, and he called that book uh, The Problem of Pain. Here's what he writes here. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems well. But pain, pain is unmasked and pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Do you see what he's saying? When you hurt, when you suffer, when you're crying and screaming, that's when God speaks to you. You want answers. When, when life is easy, when life is pleasant, when you're bubbling along nicely, you rarely thank God, you rarely think about what God might be teaching you. But when, you know, when the diagnosis comes back as malignant or, or when your husband walks out on you or when you, you bury your wife or when your child is sick or when there's a blackness of depression or, or when you come home to an empty house or when you're just crippled by, by sickness or pain, that is when you cry out and you say, why? And that's when God speaks. In the pain. See, suffering of righteous people is not a sign of God's enmity. It's actually a sign of God's love. That God would deign to speak to you and refine you and teach you things in pain. Because God's purpose in suffering is not to punish you, but to save you. It's not your suffering because you sinned. It's God is in your suffering and God is speaking to you in your suffering. And suffering is the the loving work of a personal God who is seeking to achieve his goal even if you don't know what that goal is. Now, do you see the difference? God is not angry. God is not helpless. God is not weak. God is not some impotent bystander. God is like, is like a doctor or a surgeon with a scalpel who is healing you and refining you through your pain and through your suffering. One of my favorite shows on TV is... Um, all those medical programs, you know, RPA and uh, amazing medical stories. And I just love watching lives being transformed. And if you watch those programs, then it's bizarre because you see this person and they're lying in a hospital bed and they willingly, they willingly put themselves under the surgeon's scalpel. And you watch as this surgeon, you know, opens up the skin and takes out an organ and replaces an organ and and they have to be anesthetized because the pain is so bad. And they wake up and their whole body is aching. They're in pain. And they've put themselves through that willingly. Why? Because at the end of it, you know, their body will be refined and, and better and work, work well again. And in many ways, the Bible says that, that suffering is like God's surgical scalpel. Not pleasant. Very painful, but he's treating you. Or the word the Bible uses is refining you. Because God refines you in your suffering. That is Elihu's theology. It's the Bible's theology. Look what he says over in chapter 36. Just one verse, 36 verse 15. Those who suffer, he delivers in their sufferings and he speaks to them in their afflictions. Elihu is saying, Job, how is God speaking to you in your affliction? Instead of asking the question, what have I done to deserve this? Ask the question, how are you speaking to me in my affliction? It's the same question that Psalm 119 asks. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn about you, God. And I hear that time and time and time again from Christians. Yeah. I got an ear for the word of God when my marriage broke up. I got an ear for the word, for the word of God when, when I was suffering in my health. I got an ear for the word of God when I lost my job. I got an ear for the word of God when I was so depressed. I got an ear for the word of God when I was really going through the hard times in life. 
I see it time and time and time again. It's through your pain. It's through the trials, through the suffering that God really speaks to you and refines you. And the big thing for you this morning, my friends, is this. Instead of shouting, why, 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 ask a different question. What? What are you teaching me, God? How are you refining me, God? What is it about your character that I need to learn? What is it about myself that I need to learn? What are you doing through this, God? How are you making me more like Christ? It's still painful, but there's purpose in the pain. And instead of seeing God as as this ogre, see him as this surgeon. (laughs) Yeah, it's painful, but he's a very skillful surgeon because he knows you intimately. And he knows how you need to be refined. That's how the New Testament backs up Elihu. It says, if, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in Christ, you believe he died for your sins, you believe he was raised from the dead, then you have got a resurrection body, but in the here and now, you can cry out, Abba, Father. But in the here and now, you know, God will discipline you. God will discipline you. God will refine you. That was our reading from Hebrews. I'll just read a bit of it. Hebrews Chapter 12, page 852. My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He said, if you call yourself a son of God, if you call yourself a daughter of God, expect discipline, expect punishment, and that might include pain. I remember as a child, a few things happened. I was grounded for four nights consecutively, because my parents told me that I was selfish. I wouldn't share things. I needed to learn to share and not to hoard and not to be selfish. And it worked. It was painful, but it worked. I remember being told that I had to sit down and write thank you letters. I hated that. I wanted to play with the gift, not write a thank you letter. But, you know, that built character in me to be thankful. I remember uh, my, my mum grabbing hold of me as we, we walked by the ocean or, or by, by lake, saying, that's dangerous, go, don't go near there. Yeah. That's what God does with us. He, he grabs hold of us and he teaches us hard things and he refines us and he shapes us. Pain is God's megaphone. Suffering is God's megaphone. So friends, in the midst of your retrenchment, uh, say, God, what are you teaching me? Teaching me patience, teaching me dependence. In the midst of your sickness, ask, what are you teaching me? Teaching me to be longing for a resurrection body, teaching me to be thankful for the health that you've given me. In the midst of your singleness, what are you teaching me? My identity in Christ, not in marriage. In the midst of a painful marriage, what are you teaching me? Uh, to, to learn to love selflessly. Okay. What painful thing will God take you through in order to refine you to be more like Christ? See, our knee-jerk response is why. Our knee-jerk response is turn back time. God's unjust. God is silent. But the right attitude and the godly attitude is not that. It's to say, God, you're so much bigger than me. I don't know why, but you do. God, you do speak to me. And God, you are refining me. I'd love us to be a church that instead of asking why, ask the question, what are you teaching me through this, God? I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on that. We're going to do that a bit different this morning. We're going to listen to a song. 
It's a song called um, I'll Praise You in the Storm by a band called Casting Crowns. It really summarizes a lot of what I've been saying the last three weeks in Job. Uh, just, you might want to look at the words. You might want to just bow your heads and be silent and think about what we've, we've learned about God this morning. down and wiped our tears away stepped in and saved the day but once again I say amen and it's still raining as the thunder rolls I barely hear you whisper through the rain I'm I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands. For you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never. I will praise you in the storm I remember when I stumbled in the wind You heard my cry to you And raised me up again But my strength is almost gone How can I carry on If I can't find you as the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain. I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm. Lord God, you are much greater than we are. Father, we praise you for that truth that 
You know all things, you see all things, you control all things. Lord, keep us humble, keep us dependent. Lord, I pray that whatever pain and suffering you bring into our lives, that we would ask the question what you're doing, how you're refining us, how you're making us more like Christ. Lord, our heart's desire is to be more like you, to think like you, to speak like you, to act like you. And if that takes suffering and pain to refine us, Lord, I pray that we'd be willing and eager to go through that, Lord. Yeah, I pray that we would uh, cry out to you, depend on you, and love you more because of this suffering you take us through. I ask that for Jesus' sake.